Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Just gotta make sure you're perfect. Great. Good morning. That was <laughs> smooth and painless for all of us, I'm very sure. Um, we are continuing this morning uh, in our series uh, in Habakkuk, Honest to God, um, continuing to make our way through this little book of, of prayers and responses. So far, we have heard Habakkuk's first prayer in which he says to God, don't you see all this evil that uh, is around? What's going on? And we've heard God's first reply, which was, I'm doing something with this. I've got a plan for this. And then we have heard Habakkuk's second prayer to God, in which he again you know, expresses his confusion, his, his wrestling with this concept. Why is this happening? What are you, aren't you going to do something about this? How can you tolerate this? And now we are getting deep into God's second response here, which is very woeful. You might have, you might have noticed a lot of woes uh, in this passage. So I want to start off by just running down these woes again, because we've seen God, uh, Habakkuk, you know, all throughout this book so far, crying out to God, demanding, you know, an answer, sort of like, what's the deal, God? And here we have God's answer, and it is twofold. So we've had Habakkuk saying, don't you see what's going on? And God is saying... Yeah, I do see it. He, he's calling things out. He's naming these very specific sins of the, the Chaldeans who are oppressing God's people and, and naming them for what they are. At verse 9, he says, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to escape the grasp of disaster. At verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. At verse 15, woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. At verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, wake up or to mute stone, come alive. He cites these very specific examples of of this sinfulness. And these aren't just individual wrongdoings or or little things like verse 21 is not like woe to Yusuf of the tribe of Reuben because he said something quite unkind about his brother-in-law. He's identifying very, you know, national corporate sins, social sins, things that are part of the very sort of system and, and design of society. When we say something is woeful, we mean it's extremely sorrowful or extremely distressing. And that is certainly the case for the woes that God is pronouncing here. But the Hebrew word that is used, which I'm not going to pronounce because there is a scholar of biblical Hebrew in the room, and I will not humiliate myself, but the word that is used goes beyond just sorrowfulness. It's actually got a character of like scorn and mockery. It's like, it's like a scoff as much as it is woe. And God is bringing that tone to bear on these, these national systemic sins. This is like woe to your financial systems that cause you to steal and cheat from each other and hoard resources. Woe to your government that pushes down the weak in order to lift itself up. Woe to your socializing and your entertainment that demeans and exploits some for the amusement of others. Woe to your dead and empty religion that asks dead things to give you what only I can give you. Habakkuk has asked God, don't you see what's happening here to your people? And God is saying, yes, I do see these little petty human things that are being cobbled together, and I'm not impressed. I I look on them with derision. And the second part of God's answer to Habakkuk, who's been asking, aren't you going to do something about this? God is saying, yes, I am going to do something about this in my time. 
But we see with each of these sort of woebegone sins, God is answering them by highlighting how kind of pitiful and fruitless they are in his eyes and by highlighting the, the justice and the consequences that are coming for them. At verse 10, the dishonestly wealthy have planned shame for their houses, sinned against themselves, and the houses that they've been building are becoming testaments and rebukes to the dishonest ways that they have built that house. They announce the guilt of the people who have built them. At verse 13, the people who build with bloodshed are only fueling a fire and exhausting themselves, a fire that is going to consume them. And, and God says, for what? When the knowledge of my glory fills the whole earth, it's for nothing. At verse 16, those who give their neighbors drink, God says, the cup will come around to you. He says, the cup in God's right hand. And when God talks about the cup that is in his hand, that's it's usually not like the cup of like blessings a lot of the time. It's the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of justice. It's the cup of suffering. And, and it's often described as being poured out. God's saying that cup is making its way around the room and it's coming to you. And then at verse 19, those who call idols to life have only a teacher of lies, he says, a dead thing with no breath in it at all. He's very clear uh, through these woes, he's not just like okay about what's happening. That's not why he's waiting. And he's not just going to sit by and watch forever, but he's going to do it in his time. He doesn't tell Habakkuk, that he is going to personally get to see any of these things happen or that it will happen in his lifetime. But we have the benefit of a a couple of thousand years removed to look back. Has anybody met a a Chaldean recently? Or can anyone update me on the latest news out of the Babylonian empire? Like we we see in kind of the grand scheme of history that every misdeed is ultimately answered for but the perpetrators don't answer to the victims necessarily. They don't answer to us either. They're answerable to God. And whether he calls them to be answerable for these things in their own lifetime or in the grand timeline of history or in the cosmic timeline of eternity, that's God's call. So Habakkuk has his answer. He's been asking, aren't you going to do anything about this? He's gotten God's response, yes. Eventually in my time, there are going to be consequences for the things that are happening. And I don't know about all of you, but for me, it would be very natural to just kind of turn back then to question one. Why? Why does it have to be later? Why can't it be now? If these things make you so angry, why are you waiting? And I think that is a very natural question to return to. It's a normal thing to ask. But I also think that it's worth asking ourselves, why do we want to see it happen so badly? Why, why do we need to see these wicked people brought low or brought to justice with our own eyes? Why can't we accept God's word when he says that he is going to bring justice? Why can't that be enough? In Habakkuk's case, it is enough. We'll, we'll see next week in chapter 3. I wouldn't say he's thrilled about things, but he, he accepts it. He understands where, where God is coming from. But that's something that takes a lot of faith. That struggle, that that attempt to balance the understanding of why God would withhold justice in some situations is enough to drive people away from the church, like forever. That's that's the thing that makes them tap out. So it's a a very natural and, and ordinary question to ask ourselves, but I think it's an impulse that is worth kind of looking at more closely. When we pray for that judgment to happen, and do we want to see it, like do we want the satisfaction of seeing it with our own eyes? Because again, I think that's a very normal thing. That's a very human thing. But if we want something because it satisfies us, 
that's skewing more towards vengeance than towards justice. Do we not want to be the ones who have to suffer under an oppressive rule while we're waiting for justice to come? Again, also perfectly normal, perfectly human. Jesus prayed in the garden for the cup of suffering to pass from him if it could, but he also accepted it when he was told that it couldn't. God, God doesn't promise that being his people or following him is going to be painless at all times. It could be that it's a pure and righteous and holy desire to see justice done and the oppressed liberated. That certainly uh, is a possibility and it's admirable. I think that righteous anger in the face of injustice is very much a godly thing. I think it's something that is very much in the way of Jesus. He, he pronounced a few woes himself, which you can find throughout the Gospels. Uh, Matthew 23 is kind of the classic pronouncement of woe on the Pharisees. But for me, that kind of holy passion doesn't always come very easily. It's almost always sort of colored or influenced to some extent by either a self-interest where I, I'm wronged, so the anger is sort of like, not me, get it off of me, or it's got that kind of vindictiveness that I described where it's like, it, this person did wrong, and it's not enough for that to just be undone. They need to be punished. They need to suffer in, in a way that goes beyond just justice. So I think that we need to be watchful in ourselves for when righteous anger that is from God gets sort of morphed into misplaced anger at God when things aren't going the way we want them to or aren't moving at the timeline that we might like. When that righteous anger starts to sort of curdle into that misdirected anger, I think there are three questions that are helpful to ask ourselves or worth asking ourselves. And the first is, what makes me think that I want these things more than God? We see in these woes that God is angry and sad and scornful. These, these injustices and iniquities enrage him. They're contrary to his nature. He's, he is holy by nature, and he finds these things intolerable for him. He is the reason that we want to see justice done, right? Like, that is in us because that's in God. But he waits. So I think that when we feel that frustration, when we feel that anger, we have to remember how much greater God's concern for these things is than our concern. And if he delays justice, we may not necessarily understand why, but we can rest assured that the reason is not that he doesn't want justice or isn't planning to do anything. The second question that we can ask ourselves is, what am I going to do about it or doing about it? Because all throughout Habakkuk, we've seen him asking God, What's the deal? What are you going to do? What, what are, you know, God, what are you going to do to fix this? But we aren't just passive observers. We're, we're part of, you know, this world. We, we live in this world. And we may not have the power as individuals to dismantle the kind of systems that God is calling out here. Like, I don't, I'm, don't have the power to change how our financial system works. But we have choices that we make about how we approach those systems and how we participate in them. And I'm going to stick a pin in that idea and return to it uh, in a little bit. But I want to talk about our third question for ourselves, which is, where does the righteous anger go when we are the ones who have woes pronounced upon us? I think for us as believers, we train ourselves to read scripture from the perspective of God's people. And generally, I would say that's, that's a good thing. We are God's people. Thanks to Jesus's reconciliatory work, we can say that we are, we are God's people. But that makes it very easy for us to read Habakkuk and say, you know, yeah, God, your people, us, we are being oppressed. Where is the justice? Bring justice for us, God. 
But I think if we, Benediction Church, look around at ourselves, at our city, our nation, our context, our place in the world, we don't really have that much in common with the Israelites. Uh, And in fact, I think we look a lot closer to the Chaldeans. Let's consider these woes again. At verse 9, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to set his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples. The examples of the companies and systems in our culture and in our society that are designed to dishonestly make wealth are almost too many to name. I'm going to cite one example here quickly. Amazon. The issues with Amazon are so numerous that they have their own Wikipedia article, and it is not a stub. It's a long and detailed article. That list might be too uh, small for you to read, so let me give you some highlights. Anti-competitive practices, EU antitrust charges, employee mismanagement, warehouse conditions, forced labor in China, differential pricing, items added onto baby registries, user privacy, tax avoidance, effects on small businesses, animal cruelty, anti-Semitic content, environmental impact. This article is a list of deceptive and exploitative tactics that are used by Amazon, ranging from legally gray to uh, just blatantly evil. And they have used these to make themselves into the biggest business on the planet. You might be thinking, okay, Amazon bad. Like, we get it. Everyone knows that. What does that have to do with Habakkuk? This is the thing. That, this list, I knew about most of these things before I prepared this sermon. In fact, most of them I have known about for many years. But when I need something, the first place that I go to buy it to check is Amazon. I pay for an Amazon Prime membership, and I have since about 2013. It it has a very convenient uh, feature, same-day delivery. I and millions of others uh, like to to use that feature, uh, which is extremely convenient for us and puts massive pressure on warehouses to fill orders as quickly as possible, contributing to the mistreatment of the employees. It puts countless trucks on the road, pumping out pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere, driven by drivers who are classified as independent contractors and paid by the delivery. So they have to work long hours and drive in unsafe conditions or use unsafe driving tactics to make as many deliveries as possible because they have no guaranteed income. And I know all of that when I click free same-day delivery. I'm not getting any dividends from Amazon. Like, I don't make money when they make money. And I'm not in a position, like I said, where I can just restructure everything and change all of this. And I'm not even saying necessarily that there's something inherently sinful about shopping at Amazon. But when I choose to buy something from them, and when I click free same-day delivery, and I know about all of these things, I know the ways in which they have made dishonest wealth for themselves, to some extent I'm saying, those things are less important to me than saving a few dollars and getting something quickly and conveniently. It saves me money and it saves me time, and time is money. So when I choose to knowingly participate in Amazon's system despite all of these things, am I not then also making dishonest wealth for myself at some, at some level? I picked out uh, this morning a pair of my favorite Jordans here honoring the legacy of a guy who uh, is a known compulsive gambler who uh, demeaned and exploited his teammates uh, and is a noted egomaniac. And they're made by Nike, who have a a nice long history of terrible warehouse conditions exploiting child labor to make their products. But I like owning them. It enriches my life to own them. Dishonest wealth. 
I got this shirt from uh, American Apparel. Their leadership was plagued for several years by uh, sexual harassment and racial discrimination lawsuits. Bought it on Amazon for $13. Pants or Lulu's, I'm pretty sure they're, they're in the clear as far as I know. Feel free to correct me. This, what, what I'm getting at here is something that's summed up very uh, succinctly and nicely in the show The Good Place, if any of you are familiar with it. Uh, I am about to spoil it, so if you're in like late season two, plug your ears. But the premise of this show is that there is a system for the afterlife. It's basically what a lot of people would call karma. When you do something good, you get points. When you do something bad, you lose points. When you die, if you have enough points, you go to the good place. And if you don't have enough points, you go to the bad place. And in the show, they discover that no one has gone to the good place for 500 years. And they're trying to figure out why. They think it's a, a, the bad place is rigging the system, but they get access to the points database and they check and they see, no, look, Here's a guy from the year 1500, and for his mother's birthday, he gave her roses, and that got him 45 points. And now here's a guy from 2018, and for his mother's birthday, he also got her roses, and he lost 10 points. And he lost those points because he ordered the roses on a phone made with a microchip that was mined in dangerous conditions. He bought them from a farm that underpays migrant workers to harvest the roses and uses toxic uh, chemicals on its products. They were shipped from thousands of miles away, having a huge, disastrous environmental impact. His money went to a CEO who regularly harasses his employees. Basically, the point of this, where, where I'm trying to get at is, it's not necessarily as simple as just deciding not to do these things. These are part of the system that we live in, and that's what God is calling out in this passage. These, these systems that are in place, built by us, collectively, not individually, but still things that we, at some level, carry some of the weight for. And it's not necessarily something that we can just opt out of, because that system that I described for the roses, that applies to, for example, grocery produce as well. And because of the dishonest ways that wealth is made, the least ethical products are usually the cheapest. So for some people, it's not a choice of whether or not they want to participate in this system the least ethical ones are the only ones that they can afford. It's just a, it's a, big, it's a big challenge out there that reflects the extent to which our culture has set up this system that is filled with sin, infiltrated at every level, and God looks at that and he says, whoa, you are sinning against yourselves. You have crushed many peoples in order to do that. I want to keep moving through our woes. Looking back at the scripture again, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. We happened to be having one of our church at the park picnics, I guess it was a couple months ago now, on the same night that there was a land back benefit concert happening in the Gage Park band shell, and a few of us went to check that out and, and watch for a little bit. And that, I wasn't familiar with the idea of land back. It was, it was a new concept to me, and that got me interested to learn a little bit about it. If, like me, you are not familiar, land back can mean a lot of things. It ranges from good stewardship of the earth to literal restoration of land ownership to indigenous nations. But ultimately, it's always about the relationship between indigenous peoples and nations and the land that we live in. One article that I uh, read at the time, oops, I'm a few slides behind, here we go. One article that I read at the time that I was trying to learn about this a little bit was by an indigenous youth educator named Ronald Gamblin. 
Um, and what he wrote really struck home for me at the time. In his article, he says, when you're buying property, you're made to believe that the land you own, quote unquote, wasn't acquired through violence, but only through exchange. If you live in the Americas, you live on someone else's land. I know that this is an idea that we have talked about in services uh, before and, and amongst ourselves as well. I think it's an idea that, you know, at some level we kind of understand this. But for me to read it laid out in, in such sort of plain and simple terms, it just helps me to really consider it personally. It helps me to picture my house and say, that's built on someone else's land. People died so that I could have a house that's built here. That's somebody else's backyard that we dug up and, and redid and showed off to our, our friends and family this summer. It helps me sit in the reality that when we say every Sunday morning that we're learning to be the church in and for the city, we're talking about a city that was built with blood shed by the indigenous peoples who lived here and a town that was founded with injustice when their land was taken from them. It's, it's something that just drives that, that home for me. And again, that's something that God says, whoa. At verse 15, we've got, Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. This woe makes me just think of our, our media and our entertainment, um, the ways in which our entertainment has fostered these, these cultures where using substances to exploit and degrade people for the gratification of viewers has become such a commonplace thing. And it, it goes so much further than anything the Chaldeans might have, you know, dreamed up or, or been doing with our ability to, to share videos and, and images. That's something that, you know, it's just that much further along. It's, it's that much wider spread in our society. At verse 18, what use is a carved idol if its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. This verse could just as easily say to, to us in our context, woe to you who says to your bank balance, make me feel safe. Woe to you who says to your Netflix account, distract me from my problems. Woe to you who says to your family, fulfill me, give me value. Woe to you who says to your work, validate me, give me purpose. I know that most of us here have, have sat under teaching on idolatry before. I think that this is a, a group that has a pretty good understanding of, you know, what it looks like for us to transform God's good gifts into things that we worship. But I just don't want us to forget about the danger of this, because I think that that's easy to do. This is a systemic and national sin that is created by a pervasive culture, just in the same way that all of the other woes that have been pronounced are, um, and, and just as much as something that we may individually do. And it's something that God looks on, again, with woe and with scorn. So that's it. The world is terrible. Lord, come soon. Go in peace. No. Thankfully not. No. There is a big old but in this passage. Baby got Habakkuk. Verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. It's a beautiful reassurance when we have just been sitting in some of the darkest corners of our world, some of the darkest corners of our society, and staring down something that feels so hopeless, something that feels so impossible for us to address. The Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. Yes, wealth is built through dishonest means, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Yes, the city is built on bloodshed, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Yes, our neighbors give each other drink and exploit each other and degrade each other. We call out to idols and ask them to save us, but the Lord is in his holy temple. For Habakkuk, I think this is reassurance. God's saying, I'm not gone. I'm not far away. I'm not hiding from you. I'm where I said I would be. I'm where I've always been. I'm in my temple. If you need me, you know where to find me. But if you're going to come to me, be prepared to be silent. Because when I render my judgment, the whole earth is going to sit in silence in acknowledgement of my authority over these things. I don't necessarily want to hear any more prayers from you about how bad you want me to act. I am going to be the one speaking, and the whole earth is going to sit in silence. It's it's just a reassurance that when God feels most distant, we can still have security in his authority, and he can always be found by those who seek him. But for us today, this passage is even more beautiful. We have the benefit of a fuller revelation. We we have an understanding of God uh, that goes beyond what Habakkuk knows of him because of Jesus. We have Paul's words to the Corinthians. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We have Peter's words in his first letter. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We have John's revelation that Mike shared with us last week. I want to revisit this passage again. I saw also the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. And he will be, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So, yes, we are part of a sinful culture in a broken world. I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily news to any of us. And, yes, it's discouraging that sometimes that sin can feel inescapable, that that sin is so destructive and ruinous and consequential and powerful. But Jesus has defeated that sin, that same power he has overcome. When he died on the cross and rose again, he put an end to that sin. He washed it away. God is in his holy temple, and thanks to the work that Jesus has done restoring us, that temple is among us, and we are that temple. We are forgiven, and moreover, we're inheritors of Jesus' holiness and righteousness. And as individuals, like I said, we're not necessarily going to be able to just dismantle these systems and, and do away with them. They underpin our entire society, and we can't choose whether or not to participate, right? Like, this is... This is our city. This is our country. It was built on bloodshed. We can't change that now. We are, we're already here. This is the world that Jesus called us to be in. And he was someone who had a pretty you know, good understanding of balancing the tensions of living within a corrupt system while still holding a moral authority. You know, this is the guy who taught us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's while also pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. He knows what it's like to navigate that. We can't always just disengage from these things, but we have received judgment and discernment, and we can choose how we participate in these things. We can make decisions about how we spend our money and about how we spend our time. 
We can speak truth. We can name injustices for what they are. We can be comforters and healers for the people who have been most harmed by these systems, who have been most degraded uh, by these things. And thanks to Jesus' redemptive work, we can cast idols aside and we can turn to God with the same passion and the same fervor that Habakkuk has, praying for justice and praying for restoration. And we can know that the Lord is in his holy temple and that one day the entire earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory, just as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray for that now. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.